Welcome to Immigrantly, the podcast that ventures beyond simplistic narratives about the immigrant experience. I am Sadia Khan. As a Muslim woman, I have often found myself pigeonholed by Western perspectives, seen as oppressed, in need of saving, as if my autonomy and purpose are almost obscured. But let me be clear, guys, I have consistently defied these assumptions, boldly embracing my identity and forged a space where I genuinely belong. But to be honest, this story isn't unique to me. It resonates with countless Muslim women who face judgment based on their choices and perspectives, whether they choose to wear hijab or not. What do they really think of feminism? And what brands do they really endorse? These are the kinds of questions that can be tiring. And I am sometimes so sick and tired of this mental marathon that I have to undergo just to explain to people my Muslim identity. But today we embark on a journey of redefining identity and asserting our existence through our shared narratives. I am so glad to have Aiza Fatima on the show. She is a Pakistani-American actress and filmmaker. Her one-woman play, Dirty Paki Lingerie, about the stereotypes faced by Muslim-American women has toured around the world, including Canada, Pakistan and the UK, to rave reviews. The film adaptation of the play, Americanish, is cited as the first rom-com about a Muslim-American family trying to assimilate into American culture. She used to work as an ads engineer at Google, so we'll hear more about what that transition from engineering to acting was like for her. Fatma has a rich breadth of experience and knowledge for us to dive into today. So dear listeners, prepare to dive into the depths of complex identity, challenge-perceived notions, and craft a richer understanding together. Let's welcome Aiza to the show. Welcome to Immigrant Liaza. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. So you're based in New York, right? Yes, that's right. Oh, wow. We could have literally done this interview in person in the studio. Oh, no way. Where's the studio? It's in Midtown Manhattan. Isa, as I was prepping for this interview, I've been doing some research and my team has been doing research. And you have a very interesting path to creative space. You 
are a microbiologist, you were ads engineer at Google. Tell me, what does ads engineer at Google do? I used to work on my product. We had many, many products, but one of the main one that I worked on was ads quality. And it's the thing that makes the ads appear in Google search engine and like the, the algorithm behind how the ads work, right? That's basically it. So that was the product that I worked on. So it was kind of liaising between the actual people who did the coding and mm. our customers like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Pepsi, making sure that the ads appeared in the way that they did for our customers and that everything was working smoothly. So I think working with ads is super interesting, right? Because you're trying to cultivate and promote a brand. That's mm. what you do. Do you think you've had to carry over some skills of making a brand over to your career as an actress and performer? I don't know if those skills of like brand I'm so good at because I was always more good at the technical end is what I was doing. But I think there's definitely some skills as like uh, a lot of the work was really the product management. So I had the product, my product was ads quality, amongst many other products as well. And it was really just managing the day-to-day, -day, making sure that releases are going out on time, bug fixes are going out on time. So I think what I did learn from that is project management. Those kinds of skills really translate into producing. And those kind of skills really also translate into running your business as an actor. So when I first started, I was just acting. And... It's just the wild, wild west out there. There's no blueprint, right? There's no one's like, do these 10 steps and then you'll become the CEO of acting. I don't know, right? <laughs> it's like, just, you know what I mean? Like in corporate, it's so easy. The path is laid out. Do these 10 things or put in 10 years and you will become the CEO of XYZ or whatever management position you want to end up in. But does that really happen for all of us? Well, I think that corporate ladder, which, you know, we're going gonna, gonna to tie it back into my feature film, American-ish, which is coming out, it, which the film extensively talks about. It's like the corporate ladder is not really built for brown women. It's built for white men. Followed by white women? Followed by white women, yes. <laughs> no, absolutely. We're trying to climb up a ladder that was never built for us. And I didn't understand that for so many years when I worked at Google. It took me so long to like be like, oh, I'm like just uphill battling over here for something that's not built for me. After I left and after I made my film and in the process of writing that film, because there's a character that's kind of struggling with that, is when I realize, oh, okay, this is what it is. The latter is not for us. Right. So going back to your initial foray into acting as an actress, what was that process like, Isa? You know, it's interesting when you first start something, there's like all this great success that comes from out of nowhere. And you're like, oh, maybe this is what I'm meant to do. And it's false advertisement for the rest of your career. So when I first started, I kind of was doing it on the sides. So while I was at Google, I started taking these evening courses at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. It, they had, used to have a two-year evening conservatory back then. This was like in 2009 and 2010. And so when I finished that, I was just like, oh, that was fun. But then let me just take a little writing class for fun. And I wasn't really auditioning 
much at that point. Just kind of had my full-time job and here and there something would fall into my lap and I'll do kind of thing. And I didn't really know how to make a career out of it either. But I took this writing class and it was a solo show writing class. And in that class, I developed what became Dirty Packy Lingerie, which is my one-woman show. I describe the show as sex, religion, and politics collide as six Pakistani-American women air their dirty lingerie. And in 2011, I performed that show at a French festival here in New York. That's where I feel like some great success came. And I remember, I think the Wall Street Journal first did a feature in, in their Sunday section. It was a religion section. Why religion section? There was a writer that had come and seen me do like 10 minutes, and she happened to be the editor of the religion section. The show Dirty Packy Lingerie does tackle religion in a lot of ways and Islamophobia. And it is about like, you know, huh. six months. Muslim Pakistani women and their identity of being Muslim is front and center in the show. So I guess it made sense for the religion section. And uh, that article came out and then NPR did a story and then we sold out all the shows. So when that happened, I got invited to perform it in Canada and then abroad. And within like a couple of years, the show got into the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is the largest fringe festival in the world. And the same time frame, I had also booked my first regional theater role in a play. And then I had booked this tour with the U.S. State Department going where they take American artists to Pakistan and do like the sort of artist exchange thing. And so I had all these things lined up. And I think at that point, I kind of had to make a decision. I was like, well, either I leave Google or just stay here, I guess, because the first engagement for the Fringe Festival was a month-long engagement. Yeah, so I kind of took this leap at that point, I think. Isa, talk to me about the process of decision-making. How much or how little did outside people's input influence your decision to move from a career that's seen as predictable and secure to creative space that is not seen as predictable or as secure. Yeah, I mean, it influenced it so much to the point where I, I didn't tell my parents for sure. It's interesting. I did tell all of my colleagues at Google, of course, and some of them in person over lunches and dinners. And what was their reaction like? Well, it's interesting, right? Every single person was like, good for you. <laughs> Google, go do your thing. It's so interesting. I think it was at a point where people were feeling so disgruntled because a lot of us had been there at the beginning. And then Google, of course, became a big company and became corporate America. It wasn't a startup anymore by the time I left. And so I think those of us who had been there in the beginning and had kind of grown with the company were like feeling that growth pain, right? At one point, it felt like, oh, we're making a difference. We're changing the world. And then it just felt like, oh, we're just a cog in the wheel. This is a big corporation. We're just one of many. It doesn't matter what we do. Do you think you are making a difference as a performer now? I think absolutely I am. In fact, I'll tell you something very personal. I had a health scare not that long ago. And I just remember going down this crazy rabbit hole. And I was just mm. like, oh my God, okay, maybe I won't live. I don't know what's going to happen. But then also at the end of all of it, I was like, okay, well, I've had a pretty good life. I got to do everything I wanted to do. And I made a list. I made a list of the things I wanted to do with my life. All right, I got to create art. It was amazing. And it definitely changed hearts and minds. So it's good to like take that kind of stock. I do think it's great that I have seen the effect of it because especially with solo performance, when I've done shows like at this point all over the world and abroad, so many tours, oftentimes when you're just a solo performer, people will come and talk to you afterwards. 
And that's sort of the best part of my job because they'll share their lives with me because they feel like I have as a performer shared so much over an hour. They then feel compelled to share themselves. And I can't tell you how many people I have met who have said, this is the first time they've come to see theater. And the number of people who have said this is the first time they've seen their experience reflected in theater. Isa, give me an example of a conversation you may have had with a viewer or audience member. The first set of performances we ever did in New York in 2011. I mean, for me, that was life-changing. We had these like hijabi women in the audience, and I didn't know how they were going to take it because the show can be a little bit risque. I don't know about any such thing. But what I do know is you should keep it clean down there. Just wax all the hair. Your husband will like it. And the show does have very adult themes of sex, sexuality in them, even though it's one performer on stage and I'm fully clothed. So it's nothing that, but I think for our community, it can be very risque. Yeah. You know, <laughs> divorce and people leaving marriages and people having sex on planes. It's like the show kind of touches on a lot of these things or like, you know, having sex outside of marriage, it touches on all of this. That for our community, as you know, is, is a lot. So I had these women in hijab be like, thank you for telling my story. You know, it's so interesting you said that because within our community, we have perceptions around women who wear hijab, who don't wear hijab, how this one piece of cloth is sometimes used as a tool for activism and reasserting one's identity, but it can also be weaponized in certain places to oppress women. And therefore, as somebody who is part of Muslim community, I feel like we have preconceived notions about hijab and identity that manifests with it, right? We do internally. My mom, of course, religiously covers and used to just the whole the whole niqab shebang because, you know, she kind of came of age in Saudi Arabia. She moved there in her 20s and lived there for decades. So that's what you do when you live in Saudi Arabia. So I grew up with her. That's my mom. And then my dad, you know, growing up here, I grew up in Mississippi. My dad was like very adamant. He was just like, well, this is America and girls here don't cover up that way. So don't tell my daughters to do that. I, I remember him like specifically having this conversation with my mom and I was in the room at one point. We were never told or forced in any way to cover our hair. To me, that felt very conservative. And then as an adult, when I moved to New York, as a grown-up person coming across all these hijabi women who were dating and kissing and drinking and partying, I was so confused. <laughs> I wasn't allowed and don't do any of those things, you know? And so I was like, I just thought hijabis were way more conservative. But then at the, that age, like 17, 18, 19, like just realizing even within our own community, oh, there's so many different ways of being hijabi. Right. And being a hijabi in the U.S. is very different from wearing hijab in Iran or wearing a hijab in Pakistan, right? We draw a lot of our cultural influences from India. So for me, growing up, the way I saw hijab was an Arab import. And I've never been able to relate to the idea or the concept of hijab because we have the patta in Pakistan. And that's what's used to cover 
your hair, right? Well, the pizza is also so cultural. It's just you just do it. It's so cultural, you right? You don't mean anything by it. Like the 90-year-old, like our daddies are doing it. And it's see-through. It's see-through. It is see-through. And nobody gives a damn. Nobody gives a fuck about whether your hair is showing or not. Yeah. But then I came to the U.S. and I realized, as you said, girls and women wearing hijab in U.S., is not solely for religious reasons. It is also a tool for activism. They are saying this is who we are. Yeah. Right? And that's such a beautiful expression to have. And therefore, it's so important to contextualize who's wearing hijab and in what context. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a character in Dirty Packy Lingerie and, you know, it's a series of monologues and there's a monologue, it's 10 minutes long. It's this girl who wears the hijab, but she's also very American and she sounds very American. And we had this journalist who had come in to write about that. She is a Jewish New Yorker, very liberal woman, totally like on our side. And I'm almost scared to hear what you're going to say. You're scared. You know what she said? She goes, yeah, but you know, if somebody covers their hair like that, would they really talk and sound like that? Meaning like she sounds so American, yet she does this certain thing. Oh my God. And you know, this was just in 2011. This wasn't that long ago. And I think sometimes we feel like as artists who are trying to create change and with our activism, and I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, but I think sometimes like I even forget the diversity that lives within this choir or the sameness, like people are still not really quite understanding that Muslim experience and just this piece of cloth others you in their mind, you know? It does. Isa, talk to me about differences in your process between creating your one-woman play and adapting parts of it into the film Americanish. Like, what's the difference between stage and screen that stood out to you the most? I think, yeah, I think just coming from the whole play world in general, playwriting, and as an actor, when I first started writing Americanish, all my experience was really related to the theater at that point. And I think what I was missing was that screen writing is very much a visual medium. You can tell so much with like cutaways of somebody's nervous hands. They're wringing them as opposed to telling us in words, which is what happens often in, in theater. You end up telling more than showing sometimes, especially also because it kind of came from monologues where people would just talk, 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 talk to then converting it into this other visual medium for film. So I think that was a big kind of a learning curve for me. But on stage, there is live audience, right? Isn't that scary? I have a very conflicted relationship with the live audience. Yeah, I mean, I do have like really bad nerves that I've over the years learned to calm. But it's also in a way very gratifying because, you know, that audience is your scene partner, right? So you're feeding off of their energy and there's an excitement. You're creating something together in a room with so many people, with so many strangers. And you know, there was this this research that I read many years ago now that they had done somewhere in the UK where they said when an audience sits in a room together and they laugh and feel emotions together, their heartbeats sink. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they start experiencing the same kind of things and they, in a way, like understand each other. And that heartbeat sinking only happens with like newborn babies and their mothers or co-workers that work together for many, many, many years. That's incredible. Yeah, isn't that really incredible? That's the gift of theater. 
Kaiser, talk to me about Americanish. How did this project come about, and what do you want audiences to take away from it? Americanish came about in a very wonky, painful, stressful sort of way over many, many. <laughs> so I was uh, performing Dirty Pecky Lingerie at the Cherry Lane Theater in New York City. Hello, assalamu alaikum. My name is Mrs. Shah. I'm calling from New Jersey about your ad in the Urdu Times matrimonial section. Yes, uh, I know he is doctor. How much is the boy making? I'm gonna say this was 2013, and Iman Zawari, who is a filmmaker from Florida, happened to be in town. She's Egyptian American. She happened to be walking by the Cherry Lane Theater. They saw the poster. which is a woman in a hijab holding up a piece of lingerie to her body that's the poster for mm. Becky lingerie and she was with her group of friends and they were like let's go see this for your birthday today so they came and they sat in the front row and it was a very rowdy group of women uh, her friends not her some comments <laughs> and they're like no she didn't what and they're hooting hollering clapping and throughout it's just so fascinating it was like a you know at cherry lane the big theater is like a 200 some seat theater they were right there in the front row so i could hear them the whole time afterwards she came up to me and talked to me and she was like hey i really like these stories would you ever consider turning this into a feature film and at the time i was really toying with that idea i had just gotten back from the fringe festival this largest exposure i i thought i was going to get with my art and i felt like it wasn't enough because i felt at that time i was like oh well americans don't really go to theater the brits do but really in america what sets like pop culture is film and music yeah yeah i was thinking about it i was like how do i reach more audiences with this message and so we decided to work together and you know we had a lot of stuff in common a lot of our references for films we loved that were very similar we were looking at things like bend it like beckham my big fat greek wedding as inspiration for what became americanish eventually it is an ensemble it is a comedy it is about people finding love and figuring out their lives and that work balance and you know how to move through this world. So what do you want the audiences to take away from it? I think with American issues very similar to what Dirty Pecky Lingerie did just on a larger scale. I think I just want people to understand that the American Muslim female identity, you know, it's not a monolith. There's many different ways of being Muslim woman in America. Like and what does that look like and i think just many different ways of being and it isn't tied to like one thing we all want our friends to be happy but how far would you go to help introducing tiny huge decisions from chalk plus blade and apm studios a new eight part podcast series that follows longtime best friends Mohsin and Dalia as they make a relationship altering choice will she be the gestational surrogate for Mohsin and his husband eavesdrop and find out what choice they make with tiny huge decisions available wherever you listen to your podcasts Isa, your work, including Americanish, is humanizing your characters, characters that come from marginalized backgrounds. For instance, Pakistani Americans in Americanish, basically Muslim American women in Americanish. But I am curious to know what is your process like for creating these multi-dimensional characters 
And what type of flaws might you give them to make them imperfect, make them human without playing into certain stereotypes that can be reinforced through certain characters at times. You can only write what you know, I think. So Americanish, the characters come from Dirty Pecky Lingerie. Dirty Pecky Lingerie comes from a lot of interviews I conducted within the community, but also like the people I had grown up with. And also the things I had experienced as a kid growing up in America and as an adult growing up and, you know, my friends' experiences. So all of that, those lived experiences, is what went into Dirty Packy Lingerie. And then we took those characters and turned it into American-ish. Don't you want us to have more than this? Be something? Yes, but first you go and get married and have children. Then go, be whatever you want. So I think it's a very personal story. It's a very specific experience. And I think when you write with specificity, it becomes universal. So I think while the characters in American-ish are Muslim, Pakistani women in New York and in Queens and Jackson Heights in particular, right? But I think their experiences, audiences will find are very universal. And it's every woman. It's every woman anywhere, honestly, is still kind of struggling with all of these things. Isa, I want to circle back to where we started uh, when we talked about careers, your career at Google being more predictable and secure versus your transitioning into creative space and a lot of times people focus on how these two different spaces are just financially poles apart right but there is less focus on why creative space is not predictable why it's not secure as a career and as someone who has worked within both spaces what are your thoughts in this new age of creative expression when we see people from all different backgrounds venturing into creative space and creating solidarity with other creatives? How do we make this space more secure for more people to come into? Yeah, it's a good question. I think what we do as creative people, writers, actors, comics, all of it, right? We're holding a mirror up to society. And oftentimes we're like teaching people how to think, how to think and what to make of the larger world and how to like be in community together. It's such a big service to the communities that we live in. Yet these careers are not respected a lot often, right? In some circles. And also not respected financially right now with what's going on with these strikes, right? I've heard always, like you hear people say, oh, actors are a dime a dozen. Actors are like poo-pooed on the most, I think, of all the kind of the directors, writers, actors are like the lowest on the totem pole, right? Yet we do this great service to the spaces that we do inhabit and live in. So I feel like there needs to be a cultural shift in society in general. Like we need to treat these jobs as just as important. That's something, honestly, that I have learned from working in corporate America. I'm like, if I have a master's in computer science, I'm not going to work for you for $2. Yeah, right. actors with masters and MFAs are constantly expected to work for $2 an hour, you know, and, and do. Why? Why do you think that happens? We as a society, we don't, we don't value it. And I think, to be honest, coming to this later on in life, I have seen a lot of actors not value themselves. 
because there's this idea that, oh no, I have to suffer from my art. And then me coming to this from after working at Google and making six figures and like traveling all over the world through my job and all this stuff, you know, I was like, wait, what, why? Why do I have to suffer from my, my art? I was like, guys, I have a mortgage. I'm not in that place. I can't afford to suffer from my art. You know what I mean? Right. Do you think creative spaces lack collective power? Yeah, absolutely. Look at theaters alone, right? We pay our admins, yet we don't pay the actual people making the art. Directors don't get paid what they should. Other creatives behind the scenes in theater, right? Don't get paid what they should. Actors definitely don't get paid what they should. I remember getting my first off-Broadway contract. It was $250 a week for like, whatever, the eight shows you're doing, seven shows you're doing. It's ridiculous. I'm like, I'm paying you to be here, people. I'm paying you. Make this a livable wage. Isa, in retrospect, had you not worked at Google, had you not made enough money, would you have started acting early on? Look, I really didn't know. I really didn't know, like, if I got the financial security, then I could jump off into acting. Like, I didn't know those things when I was doing it. I was just going down a path. I didn't know I could be an actor. I didn't know. Mm. Because, look, again, remember, I didn't grow up. Like, if you grew up in Pakistan or if you grew up somewhere else, right, you're seeing women who look like you being on screen. So it seems like a thing to do, right? You're like, oh, that woman is on it, then I can be on it. What I grew up with was a lot of ridiculous Bollywood. You know, <laughs> so, so I was like, oh, well, I'm not those women and I wouldn't be allowed to do those things. My dad would murder me. So, no. Oh, my gosh. We all grew up watching Hindi cinema. It is such an integral part of who all of us of are. Who I am. You know, did you see the romantics when I saw that? I was like, oh, this is who oh, I am. Yes. And this is why I am who I am. And everybody who wants to understand me should go watch the romantics. I even interviewed Smriti and it was such a fun conversation because when I watched it, I was blown away. I was like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this is who I am, as you said. This is reflective of who we are. Yeah, I cried. I mean, episode two at the end, did you cry? I freaking cried because we're all also looking for our parents' approval our whole lives because we're never going to get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they won't give it. They're Daisy. They're never going to give it to us. <laughs> Sometimes it costs us a lot of therapy, but that's fine. <laughs> you know what? This is why I became an actor. It's free therapy. There's catharsis in being on that stage and working your shit out. You're right. So theater is actually my free therapy. That's why I do it. <laughs> the truth. <laughs> Don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. So yeah, I didn't know being an actor was actually a choice. And it wasn't until I ended up at Google that I thought maybe it could be some kind of a choice because it was a very creative environment. You know, there was like the former, you know, sous chef from France who was now working at Google, three times New York Times best, like whatever, published author who was now a lawyer at Google or like oh, wow. <laughs> ballerina or like what, Olympic whatever winner who was also working at Google. I was like, well, if somebody can be like a ballroom dancer slash slash whatever uh, Googler, why can't I just be an actor slash Googler? So I it, that led me down. I was like, for fun, take acting lessons. And slowly then realizing like, oh, okay, there is a path into being. You can get an agent, you can get a manager, you can be an actor. And so that was sort of that path. I saw when you look back at your journey, do you have any regrets? Oh man, it's weird. I don't have any regrets. I hope I don't get to the end and look back and be like, I didn't do enough. Sometimes I feel like maybe I didn't do enough because I'm like keenly aware, like there were so many women in my own life, in my own family who came before me, 
who just mm. didn't have the opportunities because mm. of the times that they were born in or the cultural circumstances under which they were born. You know, so I do sometimes like feel like this burden to like keep doing more, do it for all of them who couldn't. And so, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. I feel this burden all the time. Yeah, I do. I do. What's next for you? Well, what's next for me? I'm really excited because my entire industry is shut down at this time. So I am going back to live theater uh, in a way. And I've been working with an incredible stand-up comic, Athir Yaqub, who is Palestinian-American. Oh my gosh, I'm going to interview Athir in October. In October. That's amazing. Yes, so Athir and I met on Twitter, which is where all great relationships start. Used to start. I don't like X. I still call it Twitter. <laughs> still call it Twitter. Oh my God, I'm not even calling it X. This is how much I'm not on it. But we <laughs> met in 2017 and we kind of got together. We were like, dude, there's so many like Muslim women comics doing amazing things. Like I didn't even know her. She lived in my neighborhood at the time. We didn't know each other at all. And so we got all these women together and we created a project called Muslim Girls DTF, which stands for Discuss Their Faith. Wink, wink. And it was a web series at the time. We released it on YouTube. My goal was to be the first Muslim president of the United States, but you know, Barack Obama beat me to it or whatever, so that didn't work out. But um, I, uh, he's not a Muslim. <laughs> or is he? I would, no, he's not. Of course I would say that. He is. It had some great success at the time, and now uh, we created a pilot, which maybe a theater would be able to announce by the time you interview her in October, where, it's, where you guys can watch it. I'm not allowed to announce just yet. So be on the lookout for Muslim Girls DTF coming to invade your screen soon somewhere. But we then also started doing live shows with it. So we have a live show coming up in November. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm super excited to kind of build that brand out more. So it's stand-up show with sketches that feature some amazing Muslim female comics like, you know, Nikin Fursad, Athir Yaqub, and also Zainab Johnson. So it's just a lot of fun. And then the live show, of course, has many more female comics. Yes, it's going to be a city winery on November 4th. So come check it out. I love it. Liza, in the end, if you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? I think there's a lot of heart in a sentence. I, I don't know. I think America, it's like the promise that never delivered. <laughs> it could be so much better. You could do so much better, America, if you just try a little harder. You know, it's interesting. Like, I grew up in Mississippi and now I live in New York. And I think those are such bubbles. But that experience of living in Mississippi is so much more the actual real America because New York is really like its own country. And I think growing up there in the little small, tiny town, population 15,000. People are really kind and really generous and so sweet. And yes, they're a little bit racist, but they don't know it. It's racism. They just don't know the other. I don't buy that, Isa. I don't buy that. <laughs> I don't buy into this notion of subconscious or unknown racism. I think people are quite aware <laughs> of their racism. They don't want to acknowledge it because it doesn't matter to them. It doesn't impact them. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know what I know. So I do know that my best friend growing up was a white girl. I would go to her house. We would like study together or whatever. I would spend the night. And in the morning, her mom would wake me up at 5 a.m. and be like, hey, Isa, it's Ramzan. You have to fast, right? And you have to pray. But then I also grew up with friends, you know, white friends 
who were literally like, I know slavery is wrong, but I feel so sad that the plantation homes are rotting. You know? The dichotomy of it all, right? It's like there is this irony. There is. No one is evil. No one thinks they're being racist. And they know slavery is wrong, but yet they love those plantation homes that are being not looked after. Yeah, but I think that in itself is a privilege. Mm. Not everybody can afford to not know about their racism. I see what you're saying. No, it is. It is a privilege because these people live in predominantly white, you know, but I can't even say that they do because like the white kids were sort of the minority in my high school. Yeah, but there is a racial hierarchy in the U.S. There is no way, no matter where they live in the United States, whether they live in minority towns or not. They know their place, right? They know that they are the dominant population. You're right. That's ingrained into their psyche. Being part of a dominant population manifests in Mm, different ways, in evil ways. So I think the process of reconciliation or equality for all begins with acknowledging our internalized racism in whatever form or shape it comes in. I agree 100%. You're absolutely right. There is internalized racism. And, you know, and within our own communities. Absolutely. That's so much. And and I'm going to take it back to the film Now American One of the romantic leads is a Black Muslim man. And that was sort of like very important to us because there is so much racism within our own Muslim communities against Black people. Yeah. Seen it in our own mosques, right? I grew up seeing that junk in my own mosque. So I'm always like thinking about, look, no one's perfect. And of course, I have internalized racism. And when I was growing up in Mississippi, I had some Black friends, but my closest friends were white. And I think I totally did that whole proximity to whiteness thing right? Uh. as a kid without even knowing it. And so there is all this internalized stuff. And I'm constantly like examining and taking stock and being, okay, well, how can I do better? How can I be an ally? Exactly. That's what every single person needs to do. How can I be a better ally, a better person to people who do not look like me? It's as simple as that. It is. <laughs> and as complicated. And I'm really excited to watch this film. Where can people find more information about you? And when can they watch this film? And is there an X account or a Twitter account or an Instagram that they can follow? Oh my gosh, this whole X thing. I totally forgot about it. I'm so not on it. Okay. So Americanish is everywhere on all the socials. We are launching a TikTok account, but we're all already established on all the other Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) We're uh, on Facebook. Also, that other evil situation that I have a love-hate relationship with. Me too. Yeah, it's so hard. (laughs) This is the social media so hard for me, but I'm on it. And I'm also on all the socials as just at Iza Fatima. So you can find me on there. Um, Muslim Girls DTF is also on all the socials. So you can find us there and look out for our upcoming show. Americanish is coming to theaters October 6th. It's going to be limited release in California, New York, and Arizona, actually. So Why Arizona? Why Arizona? Because we have a theatrical release with Harkins Theaters, and they have a whole population of people they think would love to see Americanish in Arizona. It's actually going to be in three or four different theaters there. So. Oh, that's interesting. Nice. Yeah, nice, nice. And then we might get more cities. So just be on the lookout. If you follow me or follow the Americanish socials, you can keep track of what's going on with the film that way. But October 6th is our theatrical release. And then later on, we'll be available more widely digitally as well. 
Thank you so much, Aiza. This was so good. And thank you for interviewing despite feeling a little under the weather. Thank you so much for having me. This was so great. Yeah, and you're lovely. It's so nice to get to chat with you. Okay, this was fun. Aiza and I had a very fun conversation. She wasn't feeling well and I felt so bad. But then, you know what? I got a bit selfish and I was like, okay, let's just do this episode. Although now when I think back, we could have rescheduled. I don't know, guys. Sometimes I think it's important to share thoughts that are not as perfect and decisions that we make that are not as clean. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I hope you go and watch Americanish. If you want to normalize different identities, if you want to support creatives of color, then go and watch Americanish when it comes out on October 6th. And don't forget to follow Immigrantly on our socials at Immigrantly Pod on Instagram at Immigrantly underscore pod on Twitter or as some of you may call now X on TikTok. Oh my gosh, we are doing interesting stuff on TikTok at Immigrantly Podcast. You can go check out our website. All the information is there. Our new upcoming projects, our current projects, our team, our episodes. There's so much on our website, immigrantlypod.com. This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan, written by Renee Harris and me. The editorial review was done by Shay Yu. Our editor for this episode is Paroma Chakravarti. And music is done by Simon Hutchinson. Until next time, take care.